Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Dr. Smith and I are here to introduce you to a preacher, Hayden Walker. Now let me tell you a little about Hayden. Hayden Walker is a fairly recent graduate of Beeson Divinity School in 2013. She was the recipient of the James Earl Massey Award for Excellence in Preaching. And we're going to hear a sermon that she actually preached here in the chapel of Beeson Divinity School. Hayden uh, works in student ministry at Mountain Brook Baptist Church in Birmingham. Uh, she and her husband, Cody, are both from Arkansas, graduates of Washita Baptist University, a wonderful young woman of faith. Now, tell us what Hayden's going to preach about today. Hayden is going to preach uh, about uh, this question, what are you waiting for? It's an Advent message, even though she's preaching as uh, the student preacher of the year in her particular semester. And she starts the sermon off by dealing with the remote, Pakistan, and moving it all the way through examples till she gets to the Beeson graduate. So from the remote to the recent is where she's going to engagingly bring the audience uh, into listening to her. The proposition, please pay attention to this, is one that she repeats uh, several times in the sermon. God changes us in the waiting, and the one to whom we wait for is worth it. And she shows that that is true throughout the sermon. The favorite part of the sermon for me, Dean George, is her conclusion. I think it's a creative conclusion that has eschatological dimensions, where she shows the first time Jesus came, he came riding on a donkey. The second time he comes, you come on the right horse, white horse. And she has several of these contrasts uh, until she concludes climatically with the fact that he has been wait, worth waiting for, and therefore we should trust him now. You know, this sermon, Dr. Smith, has exegetical grist to it. It, it has theological depth. It's delivered with poise. I think it's a wonderful example of uh, student preaching here at Beeson. So let's go to the chapel of Beeson Divinity School and listen to Hayden Walker. What are you waiting for? Praise team, that was absolutely beautiful. Um, and we truly do believe that he is here with us this morning. Will you pray with me? Even now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This morning in Kazakhstan, a young woman, while her apartment is being searched for evidence of Christianity, is waiting. Ten years ago last month, my friend Dale sat in the hospital room, the trans heart transplant unit, waiting. December 1944, Corey Tinboom, a Christian who had been hiding Jews from the tyranny of the Nazis in her home, was in the Ravensbrück concentration camp waiting. June 1852, a man in chains on a plantation here in Alabama was waiting. December 4th, 1414. John Huss, imprisoned for his faith, was waiting. 
all waiting for freedom, for a word of hope, freedom from oppression, freedom from a broken body, freedom from persecution. God's people are often found waiting. So this morning I I have to ask you, what are you waiting for? There are many of us that tomorrow um, will graduate from Beeson Divinity School. We've been waiting on that for a number of years. But still we remain waiting for jobs, placement on the mission field, acceptance into another academic program. We're still waiting. But God changes us in the waiting. And the one for whom we wait is worth it. This morning, we're looking at the story of John the Baptist, his birth. But the story of John the Baptist, really, his birth isn't really that much about him. I contend to you this morning that this story is more about his father, Zechariah. And so to lay the foundation for this story, we need to back up from verse 57 into the first part of Luke chapter 1 to see exactly what Zechariah was waiting for. Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth had long been waiting for a child. She was barren. And Zechariah had also been waiting for something else. He was a priest. And his lot was drawn, and, and he finally had the opportunity. He entered the Holy of Holies to offer incense and prayer. And when he did that day, his life was forever changed. You see, when he entered the Holy of Holies, Luke 1.13 says that Zechariah was confronted by the archangel Gabriel. And he said to him, essentially, Zechariah, your waiting is over. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You'll call his name John. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit from the time that he's in the womb. And he will prepare the way for the Most High. Zechariah, the very thing that he's been praying for is fulfilled. But instead of responding to these promises with praise, he responded with protest. How shall I know this? For I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. And so the angel Gabriel, because of Zechariah's protest, rendered him silent until the thing would be fulfilled. Now, the this, this story of John the Baptist is put on hold for just a minute here while another birth announcement is made. The angel Gabriel appears to Mary see, God's been in the business of these unusual birth announcements for a long time. Back, back in Genesis, we see that he appears to Abraham. And, and Sarah is going to give birth to a child in her old age, 89. But Romans 4.20 tells us that no distrust made Abraham waver concerning the promises of God. Zechariah missed, missed that story. But, but Mary, she responded to her birth announcement first with, how shall it be? But then quickly turned, let it be. I don't understand how, God, but I'm going to wait on you. Let it be. 
See, these stories are in juxtaposition in Luke's first two chapters to make a theological point. Cody and I have a nativity set that we registered for when we were engaged to be married, and um, a dear family friend gave it to us as a wedding gift. We just set it up this weekend, and all of the characters, they're long and skinny, and they all lean in to one central focus, the Christ child. And these narratives of John the Baptist and Jesus' birth are arranged in such a way that the superiority of Christ is always lifted high. Verse 57, where Lydia began reading for us this morning, says, The time came. Elizabeth had been pregnant for nine months, and her time was finally coming. It mirrors the longing, the expectation that the people of Israel had been waiting for their Messiah, waiting for their consolation. And the time was ripe. Elizabeth gives birth and all of her neighbors and friends are gathered there. It's an exciting occasion. And they give praise to God because they recognize his great mercy. On the eighth day, there was a special ceremony um, for the circumcision and the naming of this child. All the neighbors, well-meaning as they were, wanted to name this child Zechariah after his father. But Elizabeth said, no, his name shall be called John. And the people get all into a frenzy about it because this is breaking decorum. This is a strange name. Nobody's heard this name before. Why, why would she pick this name? So they go to Zechariah, who we must remember is silent. It says they make these signs to him so he probably could neither speak nor hear. They're making these signs to Zechariah. Elizabeth wants us to name him John. What do you think, you know? He asks for a wax tablet, and on it he writes, His name is John. Already has been John. Before the child was conceived by the message of God, this child's name was John. John means God is gracious, and whether they knew that at the time or not, it sure makes a good point for what his God is doing here, showing his great mercy. As soon as Zechariah responds in this way, repeating the message of God back, his name is John, his tongue is loosed, his silence is ended, and he immediately begins blessing and praising God. We've got to remember that Zechariah lived in an oral culture. People actually spoke to communicate with one another, which is somewhat lost on us who live in the land of emails and text messages. An oral culture. Can you imagine living in that kind of silence for those many months without any of our modern technological conveniences. No internet, no smartphones, no readily accessible books or anything to read. Silent contemplation with God for that long. But we see the effects of that kind of silent contemplation. Zechariah bursts forth with praise. 
If we are not spending time in communion and prayer and fellowship with God, then our lives will be devoid of praise and our ministries will be devoid of power. Zechariah was changed in the waiting. Cody and I like to eat uh, fried cabbage. It's one of our favorite sides. It's perfect with pinto beans. But whenever we have bratwurst, Cody and I don't want the fried cabbage anymore. We want cabbage that's been waiting. Cabbage that's been waiting the right way becomes sauerkraut. And so maybe if you're waiting, it's because God doesn't want you as the cabbage. Maybe he wants you as the sauerkraut. Just as Zechariah's silence is broken, he's, he's been changed by the power of God. So too, the silence is breaking for the people of Israel. God has been silent for 400 years since the prophet Malachi. But soon another human mouth will break the silence as a tiny baby in Bethlehem cries out as God speaks through his own human mouth. There will never be silence again because God has become a man. It's no surprise that all the people that are gathered there witnessing these things respond with fear and astonishment. They've seen some pretty crazy stuff. An old woman has given birth, a strange name has been chosen, and this man that's been silent has suddenly burst forth into praise. But fear is a natural reaction to the activity of God. In Luke chapter 7, just a few pages over, Jesus raised a widow's son, and all that were gathered there that saw this young man be brought back to life, it says in verse 16, Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. See, they recognize this divine flurry of activity, and they fear. It's the natural reaction to the work of God. And so they ask this question of this child, sensing the hand of God. What then will this child be? And it is this question that Zacharias Benedictus, in verses 68 to 79, will serve to answer. This Benedictus, um, the word is, is Latin from the first word there, blessed, in, this, in the praise song. Um, but it draws together all this beautiful Old Testament imagery to show the profundity of the definitive act of salvation that is now unfolding before them. I wish we had time to visit each one of these images, but we'll just look at a few of them this morning. But the form of this praise is beautiful. It's a song. Salvation necessitates praise. Salvation necessitates song. And Zechariah's silence has been transformed into song. 
When the people of Israel came through the Red Sea, they praised. Deborah and Barak, after they were delivered from the hand of the evil, Sisera sang a song. David, delivered from the hand of Saul, sang. Paul and Silas in the prison sang. And in Revelation 14, we see a glimpse into heaven with all the saints gathered around the throne of God, praising. And we have the opportunity in the present to engage in this eschatological practice of praise. So Zechariah begins here in 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that those are theologically loaded words. And God's visit can either be for judgment or it can be for salvation. But this is a good visit. This is the kind of visit that we see in Exodus 4.31 that draws all the people to worship God. How is he visiting his people? Zechariah says that he does it by raising up a horn of salvation from the house of David. Horn of salvation. This is the only place in the New Testament that this title is used for Jesus. It's not one that we see in our Christmas carols very much. But it's an important term. It's one that the prophets used for Jesus. In Psalm 132, verse 17, God says, I will make a horn to sprout for David. This is that horn. Not a musical horn, not a trumpet. This is a horn like on the, the animals from the ancient Near East. This is a symbol of power. If you've ever seen pictures of the matadors in Spain that have been mauled by the bulls, you know the damage that a horn can do. But this is a horn of salvation. If you told me right now that there was an ambulance waiting outside in front of Hodges Chapel, I would say, okay, great. But if you told me to look down my arm and it had been almost completely sliced off, was barely dangling on, and then you told me that there was an ambulance out in front of Hodges Chapel, I would be quite grateful. See, the horn of salvation is only good news if we know that we have an enemy. It's only good news if we recognize that we have something from which we need to be saved. And Zechariah says that we need to be saved from our enemies, from the hands of those who hate us. And for him, that may have meant Rome. That was probably what was in his mind. God had delivered his people throughout time by socio-political means. But the salvation that was coming, that we now know, is so much greater than a political salvation. Because we've been freed from the enemies of sin and death. And this horn of salvation is no longer to destroy us, but to protect us and we share in its victory. You see, at the fall, humanity was separated from God by sin. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all infected with this terminal disease. 
But praise be to God, he sent Christ Jesus, this horn of salvation, to make atonement for our sins, that we might be raised to the newness of life. And so we can praise with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 55 to 57. He says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God does this based on his own character. Zechariah says that he's remembered his holy covenant. When God remembers something, it doesn't mean he's forgotten anything. It means that he's acting on his own word. And the proper response to this salvation as Zechariah shows us here, is service. Service. You know the story of the Exodus. You know that God told uh, Moses and Aaron to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. But the part that gets chopped off most of the time in Prince of Egypt and even from Charlton Heston is the clause at the end there. Exodus 1.8 says, let my people go so that they may serve me. The purpose of our salvation is that we might now serve God. And Zechariah tells us that we do this in four different ways. Without fear and holiness and righteousness forever. And it's only after all of this this rehearsing of God's past and coming salvation, that Zechariah is able to answer, what then will this child be? You see, John doesn't make sense apart from God. John's story has no significance apart from God's story. You will be called the prophet of the Most High, going before the Lord to prepare his ways. The beautiful little town of Colmar, France, is home to my favorite um, portrait of John the Baptist. It's on the Eisenheim altarpiece. And in that depiction of John, in his left hand, he's holding the scripture. And with his right, with a long bony finger, he's pointing to Christ. John's greatest good was when he was pointing away from himself and to the Messiah. John was only able to fulfill his job description because he understood who he wasn't. The same is true for us. We are not the Messiahs in our ministry. And our ministries will only be glorifying to God whenever the spotlight is off of us and pointed to Christ. And John did exactly what he was supposed to do. And in Luke chapter 3, verse 3, we see that he did go out. And he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is the good news the forgiveness of sins. 
in verse 78, I love this about Zechariah. He can't stay away from Jesus. He spends two verses on John, and he gets right back to praising the Christ. But, but he says it's because of the tender mercy of our God. We must remember that the mercy of God, this tender mercy, the kind that's down in your gut, is not good news until we've understood how wretched we really are. And when we understand the depths of our own sin, then we can truly exalt the tender mercy of God because we know how completely undeserving we are. Zechariah says it's the sunrise that shall visit us from on high. In the King James Version, um, the sunrise is translated as day spring. You may know that from some of your Christmas carols. Come thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. This, this word um, can mean a, like a rising star or a tender um, plant that is raising up, which evokes some of the imagery out of Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23, Zechariah chapter 6. This image of um, the plant being restored to the stump of Jesse. But, but this is really cool, y'all. They both find their fulfillment in Christ. In Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus says of himself, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. That's Christ. And, and he comes and brings us this light. And just as we've read in our responsive reading, it brings us out of the deep darkness in which we live. And the salvation that's granted to us by Christ is seen here in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. First John 2.8 says that the darkness is passing away, but it hasn't passed away all the way yet. We still live in the in-between, in the inaugurated eschatology, the already, but the not yet. Romans 8.22 and 23 says that all of creation is longing for this redemption. Because Christ has come at the first advent, but the second advent, when all things will be restored, is that which we still wait for. But God changes us in the waiting, and the one for whom we wait is worth it. Unfortunately, this passage doesn't end in verse 79. We're drawn out of this wonderful warp of praise into the reality of everyday life. Verse 80 reminds us that John was still a baby and that Jesus was still in his mother's womb. Zechariah was old whenever the birth announcement of his son came. And so he likely didn't live to see the fulfillment of, of what he spoke about here in the Benedictus. Zechariah probably died in the waiting room. Many of us 
may die in the waiting room. Would those who know you know that you are in the waiting room, that you're waiting for something? Have you so rooted yourself in the things of the earth that this is your home and you have have no sense of waiting for Christ? Now, waiting does not mean idleness. Waiting means industry. And we can't be so consumed with the second advent that we miss the implications of the first. When Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, the angels appeared to the disciples and said, Men of Galilee, what are you looking for? It's time to live out the Great Commission now. We must not neglect the implications of the first advent. When you go to a restaurant and you sit down, the person that comes to serve you is called a waiter. We should be that kind of waiters, people who are working and serving the purposes of God, even still while our hope is in the return of Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in a letter to his parents um, from prison, The season of Advent is a season of waiting, but our whole lives are an Advent season. That is, a season of waiting for the second Advent, for the time when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus himself was a man of waiting. Waited 30 years to begin his ministry. Four days to raise Lazarus. Uh, John, 15, John 5 verse 19 says that Jesus waited on the Father and only did what he saw his Father doing. God waited three days to raise, raise Jesus from the dead. And then Jesus waited 40 to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And up until this moment, Jesus has waited to return to us. But when he does, the waiting room will be transformed into the throne room. At the first advent, Jesus was greeted by a handful of shepherds. At the second, he'll be accompanied by the host of heaven. At the first, he rode in on a borrowed donkey. At the second, he'll ride a great white horse. At the first, he was judged by Pilate. At the second, he will judge all of creation. At the first, he wore a crown of thorns. At the second, he'll wear many diadems. At the first, he was mockingly called King of the Jews. But at the second, he will rightfully be understood as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the Christ who was and is and is to come. And when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art.
You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.